नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते दिस मंत्र इज द मोस्ट सेक्रेट मंत्र एज आई मेन्शन बिफोर एज यू प्रॉबली नो ऑफ द श्रीमद भगवतम एंड द आइडिया ऑफ वासुदेव कृष्णा हु इज इन ऑल this is the ideal and people's idea of krishna is much misunderstood you see when krishna lived in this world he was also symbolizing the purification and the perfection of certain human emotions like romantic love and so on but people tend to forget that krishna was only a child then when he was living in vrindavan and all that wonderful sort of romantic play with the gopis they were married women they were completely loyal to their husbands it was not a sexual kind of thing as most people because human nature being what it is it likes to bring things down to its own level it's so much trouble to go up to a higher level but the truth is that uh, <coughs> as my guru put it those gopis were really reincarnated rishis and they came to show the divine play between the soul and god well it's a beautiful thing to understand because the all human fulfillments including that of human love are really they can be fulfilled in god in a way that they are never fulfilled among human beings look at the emotions the ups and downs the hurts the uh, bitterness the betrayals all the things whether valid or not valid that go to make up human emotions of many kinds these are uh really stepping stones to what it's all about god is our real companion and lover and and friend and everything and so in my book the path the autobiography of a western yogi is a very a uh, nice thing where my guru ji says the desire for outward companionship is a reflection of the soul's inward desire for companionship with god but the more you seek to satisfy that desire outwardly the more you will lose touch with the inner divine companion and the more restless and dissatisfied you will become the concept that i'm trying to hold up to you now is and i've been doing through all these different uh this series of of talks is joyful playful wonderful austere definitely there's an austerity in it severe in a way but only severe if it to you means giving up things that you think are precious to you in the end you will notice that all saints all who have found god are absolutely thrilled they say it was worth it they say that all the struggle and pain of countless incarnations it was worth it and the seeming disappointments and there at the beginning in the beginning it may seem as if god is so cruel he takes this away and takes that away but in the end 
There is nothing but fulfillment. In the end, every soul, there isn't a single one who says, well, forget it, it isn't worth it. Everyone says it's worth all the suffering, all the tests, all the tragedies, the tears, the pains. Everything is worth it to find this bliss. As Sistikana Mata, Yogananda's most advanced woman disciple, said when she was just at the last breath of her life, she said, oh, too much joy, too much joy. This will be, this is your destiny. You can't get away from it, but you can delay it. Oh, you can delay it for a long time. Let me read something to you also from Conversations with Yogananda. Guruji said, think how for thousands of years human lovers have bowed under the moon to love each other eternally. And the moon looks down and laughs to see their skulls strewn over the sands of time. Such is human love. This body seems so permanent, but life is so brief. The love entertained by people for one another is an abstraction. Only love itself, like life itself, endures for eternity. Its forms change constantly. Outward attachments also change. God's love alone is eternal. What we learned in living with him, and it was a wonderful experience, he helped us to live in eternity. He helped us to live in the thought that whatever we have now is not ours for very long. When uh, I mentioned my father once. He said, you have no father. Seems a bit drastic, but he wanted me to know that God is our father for eternity. It wasn't that he wanted me to be against my father, but yet it is a curious thing. I think that uh, maybe he saw that there, it wasn't that there was an attachment with my father, but there was a certain identity. It was strange for the first year or two when I was with my guru, Every time I'd try to think of my guru, the first image that came to my mind was my father's image. And uh, so maybe he was reading my mind in a special way that I have yet to understand more deeply. But indeed, he wanted us to always realize, and it's not that he was against human relationships. He, he helped encourage people to get married. He performed weddings for people. I, I was going to say he married people, but in English that means either you marry somebody or you perform the wedding, so I wanted to make it clear. But he performed the wedding for many people as a minister of his church. But he always urged people in marriage itself. And in our Ananda wedding ceremony, which I wrote, the emphasis also is to see God in each other and to realize that the goal of human love is to help develop our relationship ultimately with God. So many people, they think, well, I'm satisfied in this little sort of mud puddle, and uh, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to think about God for now. Let me just have fun. Well, he didn't encourage that kind of attitude. He encouraged us to think in terms of uh, God. You know, a very interesting thing. His most advanced disciples, most of them, were actually married people. It isn't as if they were all renunciates. But they were people who had satisfied that desire and gone 
on beyond that. His most advanced disciple was married. Dr. Lewis was married. Oliver Black was married. Sister Ganamata was married. Kamala Silva was married. Marriage is in itself the issue. But he did encourage people always to see that marriage is a stepping stone to a higher union. And of course, the difficulty with too many people is that if they get married, when they get married, that becomes their entire absorption. It's just us little kiddies and us, us four and no more was the way he used to put it. And uh, he wanted us to realize that in a family too, and a family can be exalted and purified if they can see that all is really an expression of uh, a God, that they do it for him. That kind of union between two souls, if it's purified like that, is a wonderful thing. The only trouble is how often I have seen that it takes people in the wrong direction. How often I have seen that people who were in the monastery, once they left, within two weeks, it seemed to me, they were married. Marriage in itself is not a fulfillment. It is a means toward fulfillment, if you make it that. But if you think of it as a fulfillment in itself, you'll get trapped. So realize that there is, and I've been trying to sort of play the both ends against the middle here, you might say. I've been trying to help you to understand that on the one hand, the spiritual path is play and joy and um, a wonderful uh, dance in God. But on the other hand, there is a, a very, very severe side to it. And uh, we must accept both. When my guru talked with us, he could also be very stern. If he saw that we were slipping from that ideal, he didn't, he didn't play along with it. You might think, that, because worldly people tend to take spiritual principles and then bring them down to their level. When Jesus Christ said that uh, you should give up everything when you go on your journey to bring people these teachings, don't take any extra clothes, don't take a second coat or or shawl, um, don't take any extra money in your, in your uh, purse. Just he was recommending, actually, very interestingly, he was recommending the life of a real sannyasi. And so Krishna, on the other hand, emphasized the life of doing your duty in the world, uh, fighting the battle of life, etc., you could say, because the Indians have become more sannyasi-oriented, the Christians have become more worldly-oriented, you could say that in a way Christians are better Hindus and Hindus are better Christians. I'm putting that to you as a joke in a way, but uh, think about it. There aren't all that much, there's not all that much difference between one and another. It would be wonderful if all Hindus could look upon Christians as their brothers and sisters if all Christians could understand that what the Indians teach with all their Ganeshas and Indras and Shivas and Kalis and all that, which they don't understand at all. I've written a book called The Hindu Way of Awakening. I, I think you'd enjoy reading it, even if you're a Hindu, because it helps to show that the way of awakening is behind those images. 
it's really ultimately an inner path, as the Christian path is. The difference between the two is essentially that uh, the Hindu way is much broader. It is more practical. It is um, more yogic. It teaches moksha and not just uh, sort of living in heaven with a bunch of angels flitting around. I mean, imagine living in heaven for all eternity with, uh, with a harp. My God, I think it would get a little boring. Or this idea of an eternal hell, which you find in, in Orthodox Christianity. You see, there's a difference between real Christianity and Orthodox Christianity. Yogananda came to bring original Christianity, which didn't teach that at all. But the normal Christian view, like a lot of different religions in the world, they think of hell as an eternal thing. I, I've often thought of it, of it like this, that you, okay, let's imagine... Uh, a young boy, 18 years old, living in the slums of a city, mixing with gangsters and low types, and getting killed in a gang war by the time he's 18. So, according to the dogmas and tenets of religion, he'll go to hell for eternity. And just imagine this poor fellow, two billion years down the road, because, mind you, eternity isn't a thousand years, it isn't five thousand years, it isn't a billion years, it is literally eternal. Well, let's think of it in time still, and let's think of this poor fellow stuck there, down there for a couple of billion years, and a friend of his says to him, well, what are you down here for? And the young, well, he's not young anymore, but he says, I don't know, I can't quite remember. It's just a, an absurdity to think that a finite cause can have an infinite effect. Even the astral heavens and the astral hells, sure, they exist, even as you see hell in this world and heaven in this world. This garden in the scene behind me, this is our center, in the spiritual center in our community in Ananda, in California. It's a heaven on earth. Many people actually, seeing this, this place and the buildings around, have actually been, have decided this is my path because they know now from something outward that it is a way of finding God as beauty. And so the, the beautiful things of this world, yes, we do have heaven in this world. Yes, we do have hell. I know that the two most beautiful places I have seen in the life of traveling, I started at six months old. I can't say I remember that, but... I've been moving ever since. And the two most places I've seen in this life are island, the island of Bali in Indonesia and Kashmir. But you know, the last time I went to Kashmir, I thought, they're ruining it. And Bali, I don't know, but I rather think that too. When I went to Bali, it was 1958, and people didn't have electricity, and the roads weren't paved, and everybody went by bicycle, and they went with lanterns, and it was so charming, and the people were so innocent. And yet, there's been violence there, and uh, religious unrest, and so on, terrorist acts, and so on. And in Kashmir, I mean, people don't want to go there now. But these places which can be heaven can also become hell. Man can make it what he likes. But we need to create heaven 
inside ourselves. You know, St. Francis, he was the son of a wealthy merchant in his day and age, back about 1200 and something A.D. And he gave up everything and lived just like a beggar in God. And he prayed to God, make me, well, yes, the tradition is that he prayed this prayer, make me a channel of thy peace. That was his message, his life. But the interesting fact is, too, that the actual author of that particular prayer, Lord, make me a, an instrument of thy peace, was, according to the church now, written actually by, by William the Conqueror, who was a far more spiritual person than people realize. But it's so in tune with the spirit of St. Francis that when we sing this song now, um, let us think of both um, the power of William as a devotee, the sweetness of St. Francis. Make me a channel of thy peace. Where there is light, where there is darkness, let me bring light. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. That let us all try to serve as channels of God, because as his channels alone can we really bring heaven on earth. Joy to you. Lord Most High, our Heavenly Father, all our lives we dedicate to Thee, all our labors, all our joys and woes, all our pleasure, all our melody. Make us each a channel of thy peace. When in darkness, guide us from above. Where there's sorrow, may we sow thy joy. Where there's hatred, may we share thy Lord Most High, our Heavenly Father, all our lives we dedicate to Thee, all our labors, all our joys and woes, all our pleasure, all our Share.